Hello, this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. With me, Michael Q. And me, Roger Bell-West. And it's September now, as we record this, in the United Kingdom. And uh, things are changing in the wind. We'll talk about that at a little bit in a moment. But first, Roger wants to say a couple of things. Oh, thank you very much to Glenn Lewis, who has dropped some money in our tip jar. Uh, welcome this it encourages us to keep doing the show and um, if you would like to join him uh, paypal.me slash rogerbw and say that it's for IRTD but first Nice people at uh, Bundle of Holding, who um, are about the... They're not quite a sponsor, but they do allow us access to their offers and a chance to review them. Yeah, I mean, um, they don't send us money. That would be ridiculous. Well, what would we spend money on if we had it? we spend it <laughs> on role-playing games. They, they cut out the middle. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so this this month we've got two things we'd like to mention. Uh, both of the things we've mentioned before and gone on a bit for because they do do follow-up. And the first follow-up is Troika. What was Troika originally from? Uh, well, the system is spiritually, at least, derived from the fighting fantasy system. You know, you have a skill and a stamina. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, it's deliberately very lightweight. And it is a bit weird. It does weirdness the whole ruddy time. I mean, you could be your your character class could be dental floss manufacturer, mystic dental floss manufacturer, mm-hmm. and you could have specified moves with what you do with your mystical dental floss. But let's not go there. I I will say I have not run it. I'm not sure that I'm likely to run it, but I really enjoy reading it, and it, it, it's I, I, great for getting inspiration. So. I, I sort of I sort of admire it from a distance. So I've read, though, uh, yeah. uh, seven. This is this is Troika Worlds, and I, th- I think these are designed all to be used individually rather than plugged into an existing campaign. Insofar as that is even a meaningful concept in Troika. Uh, so we have Etherjack's Almanac, which is which is in six fragmentary pieces. I wonder if this is originally a fanzine or something like that. But anyway, you you have you know drive elementals and and shell people out out of uh, Anne McCaffrey, and and a different sort of thing out of Ancillary Justice. But basically, you you have these these World War One aircraft that fly through the ether somehow. Oh right, tally ho, uh, and and shocks away. One of the character classes is a wrecked spaceship. Well, who amongst us has not want, wanted uh, to play something uh, metallic but sessile? <laughs> uh, so, I, I think possibly my favourite on initial skim of these is Bones Deep. Uh, yeah, you you are a group of skeletons who are, have, have certain natural advantages in terms of deep sea exploration, not being buoyant. Not needing to breathe. Yes, yeah. those those are leading advantages. So, so you you are skeletons exploring the ocean floor. I mean, what what could go wrong with that? Crush depth. Uh, not a problem if you don't have any um, 
hollow air-filled cavities. So, so you'd, you'd want to be careful about the sinuses, but apart from that, <laughs> I, I speak as someone who has actually written this up for role-playing games. <laughs> a Bug's Guide to the Shimmer. Uh, you are insects and allied trades in a huge underground cave. Much oh, it's been, it, It's been done before. By, by Savage Worlds, no less. <laughs> uh, City of the Red Pox, which is basically a decadent king in yellow sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, Leaf Punk, you, it, it is post-apocalyptic, I know you are humans with bits of plant grafted to you, because obviously that makes sense. Absorbing, absorbing nutriment directly from sunshine, I would have thought. Uh, that gets tricky, because the, the, I mean, you only get about a kilowatt per square metre at ground level. Uh, okay. That's not really enough. Um, slow slay to plankton downs. Which is basically you're you're on a hovercraft going across the ice, and there's a murderer on board. Ah, an old classic. Mm-hmm. It's a classic for a reason, and jaws get involved. <laughs> and very pretty Paleozoic pals, Permian nations. You can play a dinosaur. Humans attack. Ah, yes, I. These are all role-playing experiences that my soul has been longing for. Um, they, they mostly feel like one-offs, to be fair. I mean, you, you might get two or three adventures out of them. I, I don't think you. these are designed for long campaigns, and to be fair, I don't think Troika is really designed for long campaigns. Um, no. But I know at least one person who absolutely needs to read this, and I will, I will uh, be suggesting that he get hold of it. Uh, it, it it's... Even if I don't use it, it it reminds me that I don't actually have to always go along the standard lines of things I always do, and I can just get really effing weird, and it'll still result in a playable game. It's so good, it's for morale for alone, you, yeah. it's... we should add that the base, uh, the core book, is included in the offer. Uh, in in case any of you have failed to pick it up on our last mention of it, so. Yeah, I mean, there, there were other things in the original offer which I don't think are all repeated here, but y- you have that already because you, ha- you have good taste. Uh, and, you listen, and you listen to us. And the other thing... Uh, okay, so this is Bundle 5 of Powered by the Apocalypse games. Uh, we have talked about Powered by the Apocalypse games before. Let, let us just be relatively quick on this. Uh, it's not a system that we tend to love. I, I I have a fair amount of enthusiasm for it, but go on. Well, uh, I, I find it restrictive in some respects. Um, it, it really does seem to be very much you are playing in a genre and you are going to do the things that people in that genre would do. And if you if you can resist what I always suffer, which is the urge to fight that, then it can be great fun. I would say that I have always found myself, when running Powered by the Apocalypse games, bouncing up against the walls of the system and the definition of the genre. But mm. it has the virtues it has the virtues of, of its vices. It's very focused, not quite as focused as some of the Troika stuff we've just been discussing. But fungus. Um, <laughs> fungus. I'm a leaf plant person. No, no, let, let, let's not go there. I can't imagine. I can imagine a power by the apocalypse, but it comes with a set of pre-generated 
characters whose character sheets are the process for generating character and advancing it. And that is very welcome in, uh, it, when, you, when you're trying to teach somebody a system and get them involved at short notice. It is very narrativist. Mm, um, absolutely. And, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's also relatively low resolution. I mean, your die roll might, might well be, do you succeed in physically overpowering this person, not do you hit them in this particular action? Yeah. And that, that's uh, another thing that is a bit of a shift from my usual approach. Yeah, it's uh, but but it ha- it has uh, many many virtues. I'm in a uh, dungeon world campaign at the moment, and I've been in, um, so I- I've run and and been in. Let me see now. Masks and Monster of the Week. I've run for my family actually, which was great fun. And I've been in uh, Blades of the Dark, which is um, as the start of another subset of of. Powered by the apocalypse-inspired games. Yeah, I, I, I think that's inspired by, but sort of going off into its own thing. You have it also is. been in Last Fleet. Uh, which yes, is one, which is one, one of us here. Yeah, well, let's go I, through I, the what. Let's yeah, go, what, I, what I felt I wasn't on. really getting that until I think I've said before the the Esoteric Order of Roleplayers run of Monster Hearts. Um, caused me to see this as a different sort of game. It, it's not at all my usual sort of thing, but I, I think I was starting to get it towards the end of our run of Last Fleet. La- Last wh- Fleet wh- which is basically Battlestar Galactica with the serial numbers filed off. Uh, new Battlestar Galactica with the serial numbers filed off. What I found difficult about it was that it concentrates entirely on the dramatic and doesn't provide you much way to resolve the Actual procedural issues that that are going on. You will, mm. you will learn about the favors you have to get other. You have to offer other people to get them to do the thing you want them to do. You will not discover whether you actually manage to get your fighters refueled. Um, and yeah, that, I think if, that was if, a problem. If you are uh, prone to, let us say, accountancy and spreadsheetage in yeah. your games, as, as I tend to be. Uh, you may well find that it, it gets a bit uh, hard work in that regard. Yeah, if, if you want to know, hang on a minute, how many fighters do we actually still have on board? Mm. This is not a game that is going to suit that style of play. Yeah. Uh, so go, going into it, realising that, I think, would would help. Okay, having talked about uh, lastly, what else have we got? Uh, we've got Pig Smoke, an RPG of Sorceress Academia. Uh, yeah. You are the staff at a school of wizardry, and you are backstabbing each other on an industrial scale. <laughs> yeah, the, the, uh, the, it, this was the one that, it, uh, that just on, a, on a, an initial uh, leaf through appealed to me most. I must say, mm, me too. Um, you, you are. Th- this is one of the other things about apocalypse engine games. They, they are not ashamed to say you are a pretty horrible person. <laughs> And, you know, explore that. Yeah. As, as I think we've said before, the, these are not really designed for long-running campaigns in the traditional sense. And I don't think I'd want to play, you know, these, these what is it, ten things we've got here. I don't think I'd want to play them all in a row. But I could certainly see myself playing occasionally, a bit like Paranoia. Um, yeah, I... Good, good for a short adventure or two and then something else for a change of pace. 
Yeah, they they are good. They are good. They're all good pickup games. Um, it's it's one of the virtues that's built into the set of assumptions about the system. Uh, we've got three preview editions, so these are going to get expanded later. Uh, Crossroads Carnival, you are depression era magical carnies. There was a TV series. I didn't watch all of it, but yeah. Uh, there is Passing, You Are Crashed Aliens on Earth. Yeah, that's got a nice um, undertone of, what was it called, The Americans in it. Um, and uh, mm. I, I think, did it specify that sort of Cold War era for added paranoia? I, I think it would be... That certainly seemed to be the feeling I was getting reading through it. It's, mm. um, you, know, you you can look like humans much of the time if you're not under stress but sometimes it's just going to become obvious and then bad things happen. Uh, last of these is Rapscallion, which is somewhat magical piracy exploration. Well, mostly piracy, let's face it. Yeah. Uh, so there is The Between, which is monster hunting in Victoria and London, uh, largely inspired by the Penny Dreadful uh, comic. Mm, TV series, too. Oh, OK. Um... I'm quite happy with Mott Stunting in Victoria, Lynn. Uh There is Hearts of Wu Lin, uh, which are martial arts action and melodrama. Of course it's melodrama, it's an apocalypse game. <laughs> um, Void Heart Sympathy, Symphony rather, which sounds fun. Uh, desperate people with occult powers fighting tyrants in a nightmare castle. Uh, yeah, all right. It sounds a little... This may be leaning towards overspecific. I've been looking at Spire um, and thinking, you know, it, there's lots of lovely stuff to explore, but it has nothing to say about the actual process of fighting tyranny that you're supposed to be involved in, or at least when, when I read through it, it seemed to have say very little about that. You know, you succeed or fail in the individual mission, but the struggle goes on. I think this similarly doesn't, but... Uh, you've got the actual. It, it, it's not trying to because it's it's not telling you to run a long campaign. It's saying you know here is an incident and you deal with the incident and here is another one. Um, I it think is, it I, is of I, course an overtly political game. I mean, I, yeah. my own feeling is that anything that's worth talking about tends to get politics into it. So that may be a consideration for some people. I, I, I'd like the look of it. I'd like to try it. I think the problem with um, games set in, actually in revolutions, is that if you allow it to move towards the revolution, then you're going to have to make assumptions about what revolutions are like and what the results are likely to be. And that's going to be uncomfortable for lots of people the moment of resistance of of trying struggling to bring down the tyrant is something we can all get behind but what happens afterwards the only game i know set in the aftermath is part of robin laws's um yellow king thing where you're actually having to clean up the mess and deal with the evil that's left behind and that's um, a very that's a very esoteric a uh, bit of setting that we we did have a thing a month or two ago on a bundle of holding where the revolution has succeeded. You're one of the factions in the city, but the imperial army is you know six months away, and what are you going to do now? 
So that yeah. might be worth considering. Um, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it's tricky, but I, I think something like this, which push, pushes you towards the small scale, might work better for it than something like Spire, which is talking about the large scale. Yeah. Uh, last one of these is Bite Marks, which is delicate family dynamics among a pack of werewolves. Oh, my cat nibbles me, and I'm not sure I'm interested in a role-playing game, which involves me being bitten. Well, when we were playing Werewolf, um, I think we were largely ignoring the family dynamic stuff in favour of bashing things or clawing things. Well, that's true. <laughs> but that, that was because we were immensely low-level, and some of us couldn't get up to higher levels, he said with a certain tint of jealousy in his voice. Um, and uh, and nobody had much respect for us. They just said, here, go and do this job. Yeah, but you were going to get married. Uh, true, true. I, it was sort of semi-arranged. I help arrange it. Anyway, um, all that lot is in the Apocalypse Engine 5 bundle. Uh, as usual, you, you get a bunch of them for the base price and then more if you exceed the average price. How long do these two go on for? Uh, Troika Worlds is until the 3rd of October, and Apocalypse Engine 5 until the 10th. So be prompt and listen to us early in the month. As you will be inevitably aware, um, in the United Kingdom, we recently suffered a um, a national bereavement, uh, an emotional event in which we were all um, involved, one way or another. Uh, I can't say there were, that the nation was united in one brow of grief. That's quoting Hamlet. But um, everybody had an opinion, and most people had a good opinion, of the lady we lost. However, today we're going to take ourselves back in time to uh, uh, the reign of an individual about whom the Times said, upon his death, "There there never was an individual less regretted by his fellow creatures than this deceased king. What eye has wept for him? What heart has heaved one throb of unmercenary sorrow? If he ever had a friend, a devoted friend in any rank of life, we protest that the name of him or her has never reached us. We're talking about George IV, Prinny, uh, the Prince Regent, um, who rolled over a a peculiar and particular time in our uh, history. It was a peculiar time, I think, being suspended between um, what we had of an ancien regime and the changes and progress of the Victorian era. And uh, I think we should talk about it because it's a distinct point in time and it co-exists with some important things happening outside these islands, in those unimportant places over there which also had a major effect on history, and it's got certain opportunities for role-playing. So, in, in our last history segment, we were mostly talking about the Restoration and what came after, and so we're, we're going to skip forward a bit. Over, over unimportant things that happened in the colonies, definitely ignoring them. 
yeah, but I, I think it's significant because it's, I, I think we, we need to give, give at least a quick outline, which we may, may decide to come back and fill in later, because an awful yeah. lot of stuff happens in the 1700s. Yeah. Uh, to, to the point that I think by the time we get into the actual regency and allied trades, it's, it's quite a different life of the mind from what we had at the Restoration. It's true, and one of the major differences, at least according to traditional English um, pedagogy, is the fact that we changed houses of uh, monarchs to a bunch of Germans. Um, the House of Stuart, whose um, failings and triumphs we mentioned so much last time, um, ran out, petered out of, uh, of any, um, any heirs that Parliament was willing to put up with and the Protestant majority in the country were willing to put up with. And so they went looking for relatives on the continent and came up with the Georges. Uh, how does the... I'm trying to remember how the traditional uh, rhyme goes. Of mortal monarchs, far the worst was reckoned to be George the <laughs> First. Uh, it goes on, being very unfair to George the Third, it ends with, and when the fourth from earth descended... Then thank God the George is ended. Um, <laughs> the difference being that uh, George I had very little English, if any, and had to rely on non on non royal advisers, on people drawn from Parliament mostly, in order to get things done and in order to rule the country. And this is the start of it's another start of parliamentary government. Well, let, let's start with why is he on the throne? Because Act of Settlement 1701, he is Anne's, last of the Stuarts, yeah. closest living Protestant relative. Descended, well, it was actually for his mother, uh, the Electress Sophia, and mm -hmm. her descendants, but she died before Anne did. And uh, so uh, it's the descendants of Sophia of Hanover who are regarded by Parliament as, a, as the legitimate uh, royal house, even to this day. Yeah, so I mean, he, he is actually king from 1714, uh, but there are two significant attempts to depose him and replace him with Anne's uh, half-brother, I think, James Francis Edward Stuart. Yeah. Uh, is he the young or the old pretender? I think he's. The I old think pretender. he's there. I I think the old pretender gave it a, gave it a, a go, which wasn't a success. Yeah, that that's and, him. And then the young pretender came along and managed to get as far south from his landing in Scotland as Derby, I think, before turning back and eventually being, uh, having his army wiped out at Culloden. Yeah, that's the that's the young pretender, Charles Edward Stuart. Uh, but anyway, th there is there is this ongoing. I mean, th there are the. Th three or so major outbreaks of attempts at this, but there is a constant the Scots are trying stuff on and you need to be tough with them because otherwise they won't they won't they'll do it again. Which yeah. Yeah, there are there is always works. So so uh, there's that. There's that. Uh, they, uh, we've also got Isaac Newton. Hooray for Isaac Newton! Honestly, uh, yeah. Well, he's still going. I mean, th hmm. this is this is less than his glory days. This is um, uh, this is him 
even it is even after his reform of the uh, of the mint, which is very important. This is him fighting uh, for credit with Leibniz. But this is the, this is the but Newton may be taken as the start of the application of the scientific um, principles. Uh, there, there, there's a list in one of his books of projects, uh, chemical, physical, and uh, astro astronomical, that he feels ought to be carried out, and it's a very good prediction. I think we said before of the uh, of the uh, scientific and engineering. Uh, prospectus of the next couple of centuries, really. Mm. He also refuses to take holy orders. Well, uh, he can't. He can't. Um, He's a heretic. Unlike most of the Cambridge faculty. Yeah, the K King Charles gave him... Hey, I think we're re regressing back into the, the past. Yeah, but, but the I, I think it's significant because, you know, here, here is this chap who is not... Um, yeah, he, he he is certainly a he is certainly a religious man in in his own slightly perverse way, uh, but but he is not at all connected with the established church, and yet here he is doing stuff and and clearly being right about things, and that 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 is I I think in terms of the separation of science and religion, that's that's an important point. We should probably also note that a lot of the intellectual growth of this period is coming out of. Um, Perhaps not quite as outre uh, religious uh, positions as Newton's, but out of the nonconformist um, and um, uh, the, the Protestant but uh, but not Anglican bits of uh, of England, especially in the Midlands, where a lot of money is made and a lot of intellectual development happens uh, from the. Uh, people who attend chapel and not church. And to some extent, I suspect, because they are unable to become MPs and various other things and influence things that way, they, they are inventing their own things to have influence over. And this is why the University of London, when it starts to happen, um, is primarily intended for those who can't um, attend the uh, the established universities, where you have to swear to believe in 39, 39 specific articles or what before they'll let you in. See previous episodes. Yeah. Other things that have happened. The South Sea bubble. Oh, God, the joyous beginnings of our great financial system. And uh, learning, uh, learning which bits you shouldn't fiddle with. Well, one of my favourite bits of that, uh, I can't remember the exact word, but it's something like a company for an undertake, uh, undertaking of great advantage, nobody to know what it is. Yeah. This is an actual stock company that people bought shares in. Oh, good grief. The uh, the expansion of the empire, it's not really quite the empire yet, but it's going to be in a short time. Mm, that that really is George III's thing. Yeah, well, the, the, I was thinking of India more than... Uh, India is going to be ruled by a commercial enterprise uh, until 1850. Mm. Um, and this is the period of its great expansion, uh, of the great expansion of the British foothold on the subcontinent. Well, I, I think you could even argue that that you can trace back a few steps because, I mean, we get the Enlightenment. and that An last, ongoing project, that, the yeah, Enlightenment. Yeah, which is to, to some extent uh, put, poked by Newton. You know, here is actual science. We don't have to rely on trying to understand God in order to understand how the universe works. Mm. Uh, 
and you, you've got all this stuff about, you know, maybe humans are actually worth something even if they're not kings, and, and so on. Radical nonsense, I tell you. It'll never catch on. Which then leads to the American Revolt. There, there are a, other things too, but that's, that's, those are the thinkers who are, are promoting the American Revolt. I feel... I, I'm gonna, we're going to lose American listeners if you got any over this. But, uh, uh, but I, I feel sometimes that the Enlightenment is the excuse they brought up afterwards, much like they, uh, they decided that the whole reason for the War of 1812 was English pre- uh, impressment of American sailors and not the desire to conquer Canada. <laughs> but um, but leave, leaving that aside, I think we ought to jump over the... Uh, uh, the American Revolution, except to say, it was a very British revolution in its in its execution and follow through. Um, the, well, the, again, I don't plan to go too into detail, but I do think that its success is one of the things that sparks off the French Revolution. Oh, beyond a doubt. But hang on, let's leave the French to the uh, to the second half or so <laughs> of this. And talk about the British because you know it's, it's something we know, probably know more about. The uh, um, well, coming back to India, then uh, once the American Revolution has succeeded, we got all this money that's looking for somewhere overseas to make more money. Yeah, and that and that can't go to America anymore, and so to some extent, it, uh, that that's why India suddenly becomes a thing. And at the same time, we've got. You, you can argue about the dates and the significance of particular events, but basically we have the agricultural and the industrial revolutions going on in Britain. Yeah, this is very early days in the Industrial Re- Revolution, but you can you can see the, pro- the, the beginning of the factory processes in uh, Wedgwood's ma- uh, porcelain manufacturers and the, and the, and the me- bringing of mechanised power to the mines, first of all. It goes... Mm-hmm. It's. I. It, I think it's fairly late in the Regency that um, uh, that that we start start getting the mechanisation and power coming to the factories. But it, it the start of it's there. Yeah. And I mean, that, let, let's not forget the first balloon flight demonstrations were done for the king of France back when that. there was a king. So, well, we haven't uh, overridden that uh, that yet. But yes. Okay. Um, and. Again, it's one of those great big sprawling knock-on effects. But you know, as the, in effect, the efficiency of agricultural production in terms of manpower increases, yeah. the, the the surplus from an individual agricultural labourer, with various machinery assisting, becomes far you know rather than a little bit of surplus that I can put aside for for a um, bad winter, and turns into. I can feed three or four other people based on my work, and 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 then more. It you get the the migration to the cities. One of the causes of which was the enclosure of mm. the common of the common yes. land, making which was what which was arguably necessary but undoubtedly brutal. Um, As with most of these necessary things, it was done in the in in a. Less kind way than it could have been. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure there is a kind way to say that land you or family has been uh, using for generations upon generations. Yeah, you can't use it anymore. Uh, so, th- uh, two pre- pre- uh, so op- an opportunity in the in the expansion of the food supply, 
and a pressure towards the, towards the cities. Let us say the cities start getting pretty grim uh, mm-hmm. around the, around this point, especially in the in the poorer bits. They start getting magnificent because at the top end there is money to spend on rebuilding and refurbishing and making things new, but trickle-down economics doesn't work then any more than it does now. People come to the cities to die of starvation, to a first approximation. But fortunately, there are always more suckers out there who who think that they're going to make their fortune. It's it's worse than that. People come to the cities to die of starvation and to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, But... So it's it's a fair. I think we should probably mention why there's a regency at this point. Okay, so I guess we're coming back to George the Third. I th- guess we're coming back to George the Third. We started talking about the actual nature of the period, so let's get back to George the Third. Um, George the Third was the gentleman who um, failed to maintain our dominance of North America, um, and was painted as a terrible fucking tyrant by the uh, insurgents of America to um, justify their own actions. It's doubtless he can be described as a really good king, but he's certainly not the the tyrant that um, American mythology points him towards being. But he did, and in point of fact several times, go bonkers. Mm -hmm. The the technical causes of this are not certain. Um, partly because the the observations were were not particularly well kept. I mean, there there are some things that are consistent with bipolar disorder. There are some things that are consistent with uh, one of the Porphyrias. And, you know, maybe, but we don't really know. He he was... He suffered from some sort of breakdown in his youth, which he recovered from. And then he suffered a more spectacular breakdown uh, in which he started addressing a tree... This was the first um, overt sign he started addressing a tree as the Emperor of Prussia whilst out out on a drive one day. Um, And at this point, the British constitution threatened to fall over because we'd never had a a king who'd gone spectacularly bonkers before. But eventually... eventually, Uh, At at this point, we we do have... uh, for the last couple of hundred years, a strong parliament which is which is used to doing stuff and and setting a certain amount of policy itself. But well, as, so, as you say, there there isn't a precedent for saying to the king, "Well, actually, no." Yeah, the the the, the one of the problems was that the, the, one of the problems was the the the, the heir apparent, uh, Prinny, um, the the eventual George the Fourth. Uh, he did not favour the same party as as the um, as the, the the king his father did. Uh, the king was a Tory, uh, and the prince, possibly about out of pure attempt to annoy his father, um, favoured the favoured the Whigs, and the, the parliament was as as always seems to happen uh, divided between uh, t- into two different parties, and the Tories were understandably reluctant to give the uh, remaining powers of the king to somebody who didn't like them. But eventually, eventually it happened. Which, so, al- although the, t- the term tends to spread 
in common parlance, the actual regency is 1810 to 1820. Okay, well, that is, in fact, the second regency. The regency yeah, okay. powers were passed when he went bonk- when he went spectacularly bonkers the first time, which is what um, the madness of King George III, uh, Alan Bennett's great play, is, is all, all about. But in... It, <laughs> 1810, uh, the king goes um, permanently insane. He was going blind by that time as well, and Hmm. he spent the rest of his life pathetically wandering around Windsor Castle, uh, dressed in his nightgown with the the, uh, star of the Order of the Garter on it. It should perhaps be mentioned that, as far as the British public is concerned, he is hugely popular. Uh, Farmer I mean, George, yeah. Yes, may, may, maybe he maybe he's a bit daft, but he he's doing things that the the public in general like. So he was he was well he, he was well supported uh, in a way that his son wasn't, and there was there was great sympathy for uh, for him. Uh, but for now, but after that point, he's out of the um, of the political picture until his death. But we we talk about the regency starting when the king first went mad, and it and the prince and pr- the pr- prince's dominance um, in society, if not in government, stretches across the entire period, and he sort of lends a tone uh, to it. Um, not a very nice tone, not a very good tone. It's a tone, a, a of, very flamboyant tone, a very flamboyant tone. Um, a tone of obsession with uh, with superficialities, uh, of uh, excessive expenditure and um, self indulgence, led from the top. Uh, but light, also, light skirted women, uh, and probably men as well. I mean, who knows? The, uh, well, but also, because of external events, quite a glorious period in our history. If by glorious you mean fighting a lot and um, and winning a bit and facing down um, distressing revolutionary um, developments on the continent, yes. So now, so, so let let us uh, spread our view a bit and uh, look look, at, look across the channel. So as you were saying, the the, the French uh, uh, the lo- about the last effective thing. That the French uh, monarchy had done was to back the Americans and to um, and, and to cause um, uh, cause the United States. Unfortunately, this had cost them a lot of money, which they didn't actually have. And um, it, in their efforts to uh, find a way to get a financial establishment as stable as the British, there was a, a lot of envy um, in France. Of, if not British cooking, of, Brit- of British banking, and they, the, they there's like, a whole thing about why British cooking and French cooking were the ways they were. Let's uh, that way. We could do a podcast about it, that alone. It, it's, it's a side note, but basically, be- because of a thing that is actually causal to the revolution as well, there were a yeah. lot of starving farmers, and they had to invent ways of dressing up the fa- frankly fairly grossy raw materials. To make them interesting and taste and taste nice, and that is why you get the French sourcing tradition because it was starting with horrible scraggy meat, that was all you had to eat, whereas the British had le rose beef. 
C'est magnifique. Um, I mean, obviously not all the British, but that that was the, that was the popular conception of it. Yeah. Um, the, even today, the best French cooking is probably to be found in the in the pe- in the peasant peasant dominated areas. Assuming they have such a thing as a peasantry still, I, I don't want to offend them. The uh, but but in the rural in the rural areas um, is the primary source of all the good cooking. Um, but I think that's probably actually true across the world. The the other uh, another thing that f- feeds into the French system is inheritance law. Yeah, and the st- peculiar tax free status of much of the aristocracy. So, in England and in quite a lot of places, you, you've had the the standard approach is the first son gets the whatever. Yeah, and, and then, there are, and there are laws to say that uh, that you can only dispose of your inheritance in particular ways to ensure that the estates stay together. So you, you get a lot of younger sons who are impoverished and have to go out and do something. Conquer an empire, for example. Impoverished being a, a relative term, but yeah. No, yeah, but, but they're, they're, not, they're not going to get the land. The land stays intact and goes to the eldest son. Yeah. Uh, whereas the French system, and I believe this was also uh, codified in law, says that it has to be divided, at least among the sons. I don't think daughters get anything. Yeah, this especially applies to French farmland, for mm. which uh, which uh, is in a mess down to this century, um, as a and result. So basically the farms get smaller and smaller and less and less practical to work. Yeah. And so you get an awful lot of hungry peasants. Let's, let's put a pin in that, because hungry peasants matter. And you get a lot of taxation, which is weighed upon the peasantry and the commoners generally. Because you can't uh, tax the aristos. Oh, that would be unthinkable, monsieur. These people have paid, have paid the king a certain set amount to become noble, and therefore they expect that to, to do for the rest of eternity. Ye gods and little fishes. And their heirs and... Yeah, yeah, um, and the and the uh, and, and there are and what is make it, makes matters worse is that the French monarchy um, farms out the uh, collection of a lot of the taxes, especially the salt tax, which for which enormously elaborate uh, preparation, uh, um, enormously. Uh, 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 elaborate means of, of, of gather, ensuring the tax isn't avoided, including armed troops and walls around cities so you can't smuggle salt in without paying the tax. This is something that makes the middle classes who are investing in that, that sort of opportunity are loathsome to the, to, to, to the peasantry and, uh, and, petty, and petty shopkeepers because they're being oppressed by the system as well. There's a lot of excited stuff which is written afterwards about the peculiar feudal allowances of the um, of the uh, of the nobility that are supposed to have survived to this time. Some of them like the right to have uh, your peasants come along and shit on your boots in order to fertilize your fields. I find difficult to believe, even a Frenchman. But 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 there was a huge massive build-up of resentment against the aristocracy, against the monarchy, against the state of things. And when they try to reform things, 
the resistance and the anger and the resentment just got worse. They made a mistake of investing in a plausible Scotsman who came along and said, yes, he could fix things. And that produced a mess which I believe was worse than the South Sea bubble, which we mentioned earlier. And, uh, and eventually the king had to do what he didn't want to do, which was call, uh, uh, what was it called originally? The, the, the Estates General. Mm. Um, I, I France, think... Part France of the didn't... problem here is that France hasn't had a civil war. It has, it has not had to make the compromises as far as its monarchy is concerned it's, it's, that it's England not, has. It's not had a recent civil war. It had the the equivalent of the of the Wars of the Roses, perhaps, and the, yeah. the, 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 the and a heavier version of the Wars of Religion that broke out in England. But it hasn't had it hasn't had a parliament, so there has been no nugget around which. People having, other than the king having a right to speak, um, it, uh, has, has been able to form. Parlement is a French word, and we we stole it. But uh, in France at this time, it meant a sort a class of um, law courts who do come into the story of the revolution. But um, I think I think we can ignore them for uh, for the time being. Always find them confusing and irrelevant. <laughs> um, but eventually the king calls uh, an assembly of all the estates. The estates were the nobility, the clergy, and the commoners. Actually, technically, the clergy come are the most important because they pray for your soul. And then the, the nobility and, uh, and the commoners only um, last. And he says to them, look, we need some to do some things. Here are the things I would like to do. Uh, let's. Uh, do you want to do these things? And by and large, they said, no, not before we um, sort some things out, which was what a lesson they were taking from the English Parliament at the start of our civil war. Also, this is they know perfectly well this is the only chance they're going to have to, to ha- get, get their voices heard. So... Yeah, there's, there's no tradition of, uh, of regular parliaments. And they, they want and they seek to have um, uh, a... a, a not unreasonable set of priorities. And the king, I'm never quite sure if he's ill-advised or stubborn and stupid on his own part, Um, but the king balks at some of the things they want and uh, things go to pieces, I think is the short short story. Mm. Uh, Things go to pieces, things get bloody. Um, some, Some people who are absolutely sure they know what to do, and it involves killing a large number of people because things always get better when you kill large numbers of the right number of people. There are, I'm skipping over here like nobody's business. I, and if, w- w- once you once you heat up a mob, they they, yeah. they they tend to turn on you if you don't keep leading them to new things. And and people people have a large amount of um, admiration for. Um, the things that got said there, and I do myself for for things like the uh, Declaration of Universal Human Rights, and the, and start starting hard to think about um, about about what's implied by having a civil government and, and equality and fraternity and liberty. But it goes 
it goes bloody and it goes horribly wrong. And, at the and end everybody's got a score to settle. Everybody's got a score, a score to settle. Everybody, there are large numbers of people who are sure they know the right thing to do. And it, go, it goes into what I think was called during... Um, Oh, uh, during analysis of the of the Cold War, insensate spasm. Um, everybody, everybody throwing rocks at everybody else, and eventually it comes down. Eventually, a plausible young man from a provincial um, island, which had only been become part of France a few uh, few generation a generation before, plausible young man who once applied to. Um, uh, be a, a British naval cadet. Um, a yeah, plausible... there's some fun little alternate histories there. Yeah, a plausible young man who had eventually ended up as a, a competent-looking artillery officer um, decided to bring some cannon into the, the city and on behalf of the provisional government that was functioning more or less at the time, blew some people away and then from there followed... Uh, Followed a career path that has never been equaled in the history of humankind. I don't even think that um, Alexander the Great. I mean, Alexander the Great started as heir to the throne. You know, this guy starts starts as a, as an artillery officer, and he pushes it all the way up to becoming the emperor, a thing that the French had not had before. We should say a word or two about Napoleon Bonaparte because I'm not sure how anybody ought to feel about it. <laughs> well, look. Uh, I mean, what I want to do is throw uh, is throw uh, custard pies and banana peels at him, because you know he was so impressive that he he persuaded Hegel, the uh, the the second most obscure uh, German philosopher, um, that uh, that there was such a thing as the world soul. And it could be incarnate in a particular individual at a particular moment. Um, and I, th- I can't tell you whether Napoleon started believing that sort of thing himself. But I do know that it got dangerous when later Germans decided that there was such a thing. And they could be the incarnation of the world soul. Yeah. But, he, uh, but the thing that stops me making mock of him is the fact that he was so bloody competent. And did so many things that... From the point of view of a progressive, uh, a progressive human civilization, had to be done, should have been done, and still being done. Um, but did it purely because he was himself, and he could get away with it, and not without any particular license from anybody. I don't know whether I don't know what I'm saying is in the great drama of this time period, in the stories that we tell, I don't know whether Napoleon is the hero or the villain. (laughs) Well, also, let's just split. Uh, He more or less got himself absolute power from the things he did with that absolute power. Yeah, many of those things were positive, but this does not mean that giving people absolute power is a good idea. I think that's what I was saying. But he was... um... (laughs) Uh, one of the things he did was conquer most of the continent, mm-hmm. uh, which large numbers of people eventually resented. Uh, I mean, uh, let us say that it's hypocritical for anybody British to be uh, to condemn anybody 
for con uh, conquering uh, places, but Napoleon did it in such a concentrated fashion, whereas we spread it out across the, across the globe. I mean, so and so when the opposition arose, it was all in one place and could knew where to find him. Well, also it was close enough that it could ally together. I mean, if 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 you've got an island over here and another island over there. And you There's control something. the sea between them. It's hard for them to get together to throw off the imperial yoke. Yeah, true. The uh, so I think this is comes down to a problem about role playing here at this point <laughs> in the narrative. Yes, yes, this is a role playing podcast. This is a role playing podcast. We are coming back to the stuff we should be talking about. If you are setting a game in this era, whose side are you on, boys? Whose side are you on? Um. I, there's a lot of pleasure to be got in uh, military role-playing, I would say, in this time period. Um, and uh, if, it, uh, it's not unambiguous. It's not... Um, there's not uh, this, this is not an entirely just war on either side. So whose side are you on? Uh, do you I'm serve... Well, Wellington, Duke, Duke of... Um, notorious um, for doing the undoubtedly good thing of insisting that his armies pay for the stuff they took from the you know, provisions taken from the farmers of the lands that they were marching through. Yeah. On the other hand, he is notable because nobody else did that. It, everybody thought he was mad to try it. Because, I mean, why, why would you? Nobody does that. <laughs> and yet he was the most conservative of conser conservatives. Um, and uh, and served with some embarrassment, I think, uh, George, George the Fourth as prime as prime minister. Without without, he may have blinked an eye when the the king, King George the Fourth, who had never served in any sort of uniform, or in his lifetime, started a conversation by in which he was assuming that he had been there with his his royal troops in in, in Spain and. Do you remember when? And uh, the thought of, is he going the same way as his father, must have crossed his mind at that point. <laughs> but like a good Tory, he, he harumphed and said, indeed, sir. I, I, there's a lot to admire about, uh, about Arthur Wellesley, but um, yeah, yeah, I have to feel that the cause he served the rest, his, the cause he said was the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy. And who nowadays thinks that was a good idea? <laughs> the, the, the problem with doing that is that you end up with a Bourbon on the throne, which is not quite as bad as a Stuart, but not great. No. Can anybody play a person in service to Napoleon and think of themselves as the good, entirely the good guy? We are, we are, we are caught between one not quite an autocracy, um, a, a, a monarchy turning constitutional, and a military autocracy founded by a man who came from nowhere and will go to St. Helena. Where do you find the good guys? Not in America. No, we've heard from you. Hush, hush. <laughs> um, and so, so, certainly in terms of fiction, um, that English language fiction obviously tends to emphasise the English side. I mean, consider your Hornblower, a 20th century invention, of course, but you know, consider your Sharp and, and so on, yeah. uh, which, which is very much... Um, 
I think it would be fair to say largely at the soldier level. You know, I, I don't think much of my political masters, but they have given me this job to do, and so I'm going to do it well because I'm good at this. Officer level, yes, and uh, uh, and mostly junior officers. But uh, um, is is there literature on the French side? If it's in English, I haven't met it. I would expect that it would be more likely to be in French. I assume there there must be, Um, but the only only counterexample I could come up with is Conan Doyle's Brigadier Gerard stories, which I've not read. Um, As far as justifications go well you know napoleon is it is explicitly a war of conquest yeah and it, uh, this is this is i mean there, there may be some things said about liberation but basically he is trying to unite europe under him under one system with him at the top the uh, uh that the early days uh you can see simon sharma's citizens uh which is a very interesting book which i'm not quite sure i agree with he's He's a thoroughgoing conservative himself. Um, it uh, depicts the early early expansion of the revolution as driven by um, by uh, liberation uh, rhetoric, but actual looting, where when you when you've got control of the neighbouring le- nations. Yeah, what um, was a conquest at this era? Um, really, up I think to the end of the nineteenth century, can be profitable. Just about they they get less profitable as you go on and as, as you have more fragile industrial stuff that's making the money, but but at this point you can loot and run your army off the loot. Yeah, um, first first seize the seize the food and then seize the seize the money. Yeah, this is very. I mean, it's it, it's glorious in the same sense that glory is used in Pendragon. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, a martial glory capable of um, of uh, 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 of imposing your will on other people, and hoping to goodness that your will is um, is is a moral will, which sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. Um, uh, all right, let's go back to role playing and to role playing opportunities of this period. There's the military stuff. Including spying and uh, special operations, which role playing always. Um, but what's what? You, what have we got at home? Uh, this is a fairly lawless period from the point of view of the later nineteenth century. Um, there is inadequate uh, policing, uh, barely any really, and the roads are are subject to highwaymen, and the cities yep. have um, rookeries of thieves and uh, desperate people willing to do just about anything to keep eating. There may not be a lot of highwaymen, but it is considered entirely normal to carry a pistol or two in, in your carriage in case you meet one. The, uh, the, the streets late at night probably aren't entirely safe still. Um, at the, uh, during this period, we start to have gas street lighting, and it makes an enormous difference. But before that, um, at the end of de- the day of Parliament, you're looking... The the, uh, the they cry who goes home, and they and they the, the MPs try and f- form parties of uh, who can guard each other and and boys to carry la- uh, lanterns and torches for them. It's it, it's uh, a period. It's not quite as bad as the, the later Stuart period, but it's still a period where violence is 
very possible. Um, no, nobody is surprised to become a victim of violence. It's it's a thing that can happen to anybody. I mean, yeah. all right, if if you're richer and more powerful, you you can afford more guards. But at the very least, violence is likely to affect your guards, even if it doesn't affect you. There are opportunities to play uh, lawkeepers and thief takers, um, although they that isn't something that leads towards um, easy team play. I think um, solo play would be more more normal for the detectives, such as they were of this time period. Yeah, you you, you do get the Bow Street Runners starting up, but they are not well thought of in in the early years, and for fairly good reason. They they they're not not in any way a professional body, and, and that that really comes later. And they do have um, an interwoven culture with the people they're trying to catch, uh, even more so than uh, some modern policemen. I'll tell you another uh, opportunity for role-playing, and that is romance. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a period of the emerging uh, English novel, and it's the period of of Jane Austen. And there are role-playing games dedicated to this sort of thing. This is a period where fashion and uh, status and money and marriages are immensely important to a lot of people to the emerging middle class, to the old aristocracy. And I don't get romantic role-playing. I know you were an enthusiast for, what's it called? Uh, Good Good Society. society. Um, Uh, Which I've not played, but I would still like to. Okay. Uh, And that that is, I mean, it's... You you take your actual Jane Austen um, and... There is quite a bit of variability between people, but it is it is all basically within the same class because that is what her readers wanted to read about. They yeah. didn't they didn't want this revolutionary stuff. Um, I'm very much a fan of Georgette Hare's Regency romances, and that that's a, a spread of the term Regency because she does stuff that's quite yeah. a bit earlier than 1810 as well, e- even within that general period. But again, you know. She, Servants are servants, and, and no, nobody's yeah. going to snog a servant. The, the modern games tend to break that down a bit more, uh, which I think is a better fit for a modern sensibility, but that, that would be something one would want to discuss with players beforehand, I think. You know, don't want to crash, crash assumptions on that. Um, two GURPS treatments of this broad period, uh, neither of which is, is the Regency Romance. Uh, one is GURPS Agent Napoleon, of course, uh, yeah. which is largely focused on the military. Uh, the other is Gup Scarlet Pimpernel. Yes. the Which you can do in t- as an entirely serious game about the French Revolution if you want to. You don't have really? to have, have the, the flashy stuff, but yeah, it, it's there. Again, it's, uh, it's what we were talking about earlier, is the what do you do when the revolution actually comes. That would be... I think the best um, the best fit for a serious role playing in this situ- in this situation. I don't know. Uh, I mean, it might work better as a board game, or as it might work as something like um, Greg Stoltz's Reign. But um, uh, but uh, if you were managing a faction of the revolution and trying to be the ones whose ideas and practices come out on top 
whilst surrounded by a lot of wolves who have their own ideas, mm-hmm. that might make a fascinating game, a very difficult one, and a one that one that I would find it hard to be optimistic about, given history. I, I will point out that uh, recently published is the board game Weimar, which which oh, ticks boy. many of those boxes. And <laughs> <laughs> are there proper are there, are, are there provisions for a happy ending? Yes. Okay. But not not easy ones. Uh, and another thing worth considering, I think, um, is slavery. Oh, yes. The, the, now, the standard British narrative is we were the first to abolish slavery, which is broadly true, but it's, only, it's, only it's, after the British made an awful lot of money off it. I, th- I think the, the term for that is technically correct. Um, um, I do... I do. I think we've gone on long enough. I do want to talk about the <laughs> abolition of slavery, but I think it's probably going to have to wait till next next month as a generic pro- project. But yes, okay. it, it it is fascinating as a political movement in the um, in the in the British Parliament. And the, the, I would s- and 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 then those pesky Quakers, and they just won't shut up. They have they're, they're, they're the Quakers. Uh, are in it for the long slog. I think that I think that is. Uh, have you ever been to a Quaker meeting? Mm. They sit around and they wait for the Holy Spirit to move somebody to do something, and most times this does not happen. But they sit around waiting, and that teaches you patience, if nothing will. I, I am not a religious person, but insofar as I have sympathy with religious people, the Quakers are pretty much at the top of my list. Yeah. I, I like what they do. I like the way they do it. The, uh, but the point I was going to make was that with a parliament, you can do this. It's with an actual representative um, legislative assembly, you can do this because people who give a damn can start nagging you. Um, Even if they have to do it from outside. We have the, uh, the test acts. After all, so you know, um, non-conformists yeah. cannot become members of Parliament until I fool ah eighteen twenty-eight is when when it, when it goes for for receiving the sacrament, and and, yeah. and and the next year even Catholics. There were riots in the street about that, uh, and attempted re- revolutions, but uh, I think actually I think the Gordon riots go. Uh, Going to the category of of not quite serious enough to be a revolution, but but, but, uh, but your your Quakers, your abolitionists, and so on tend to be those people who are not permitted to become MPs, uh, and yeah. that that then sets up the, the 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 flow of information and influence, which is and they what they had to do was find find an Anglican with a sharp conscience, and eventually they did. The I think that's a fascinating story, but. And you can compare and contrast that to the um, to the American process of abolition, which uh, I don't think we can quite be proud of that because of, of the difference. Because um, they had written themselves into a corner um, for reasons that I understand in, in the in the Constitution, but um, but reasons don't, that don't look good in uh, that good in hindsight. Well, there, there's that. also a problem that uh, slavery, because of the uh, postponed effects of the Industrial Revolution, slavery was starting to become distinctly non-economically viable. 
Yeah. And so you you had people in the South who were determined to see it out as long as they could, even though it didn't really make sense anymore. I'm not sure if it was... It, it was... It was... Slavery, for all intents and purposes, slavery continued to exist and continues to exist in the United States. It, the ghost of slavery still haunts everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that as... As... As we've said before, in, in, as is common in the, the, the aftermath of revolutions, they failed on the follow-through. And um, it all gets very messy. Let, let's not go into detail on this. We are not Americans. No. Um, but yeah, but it, 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 it's a mess, is the short version. What I say about the English abolition is that the English had the good luck to practice slavery abroad. Mm-hmm. So the poisonous assumptions about racial superiority though they were there in lots of English people, British people, um, though they were there, were not as economically necessary as they were in the United States. Also, wherever you have slavery, you have fear of a slave uprising. And a slave uprising under the English system, well, we've we've already sold the slaves to those guys over there, so we don't care. Right. Um, uh, Yeah. Terrible comparisons can be made at this moment in time about our, our, towards our behaviour towards the Irish. But let's not go into that. That's uh, uh, all its nest either. <laughs> I will say that this is the period at which radicalism enters the English soul. Mm. Radicalism, partly because of what English political theory was already saying, and partly by, by what people saw when the Americans and the French started uh, to apply it. Yeah, I mean, there's a straight line out of, out of Enlightenment thinking. Yeah, but, but there, are, there are now actual, actual examples being, uh, being put to place, and in America, not doing too badly. And it's, it's during this period you get things like Chartism, the start of Chartism anyway, and, the, uh, and the, uh, things like the Peterloo Massacre. Which um, which happened in my hometown of Manchester, and was uh, one of the bloodiest putting downs of civil unrest in England at the time. Though we did nastier things than that to the Irish and the uh, and the Scots from time to time. And and you also get utopian communities, you know. Oh Col- yeah, Col- Coleridge and Southey go go off to uh, found a um, well. They don't actually do it, but they attempt to found a, a commune in the wilderness of Pennsylvania, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, there were a, there are a few. Uh, for some reason, they did tend to involve freed love and uh, and group marriage and communal property. Uh, well, communal property you could perhaps understand, but the free love was going uh, a bit too far, even in the wilds of Pennsylvania. But. Uh, in the U- in the UK, it turned into things like the cooperative movement and um, other stirrings, which would later become the Labour Party. Basically, the, there are ways to live other than screw your neighbour for as much as you can get out of him. Yeah, actually, which, uh, which is becoming on the other side an orthodoxy of its own. Yeah, um, the the vulgar understand the vulgar misunderstanding of uh, of Adam Smith. And people who uh, twisted his ideas for their own um, 
uh, for their own uh, benefit. The that I was going to say, there's an opportunity for role playing, if you like, trying to found a utopian community, <laughs> trying to uh, create and manage um, something that the rest of the world is fairly hostile to. If I were doing it, I might well do it as um, uh, with, with with an occult undertone and a, uh, a deep secret that was being hidden um, from the world. I mean, but, many of the standard uh, campaign frames can be can be put into this quite easily. I mean, a, an occult special operations unit is obviously uh, anachronistic, yeah. but you could easily see that on either side of the war. You can uh, see, you can probably see it if you're going to do it. It's probably going to happen on both sides of the war if the secret isn't kept carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, you should probably you would probably want to avoid the vulgarity of having either major side being actually allied with the powers of evil. Um, <laughs> no, each but, side says that the other is. <laughs> well, no, I think if each side suspects that the other is, whilst knowing that there are third parties who are definitely on the side of evil that you're trying to suppress. And and some, you, some of whom you may, in fact, be working for. Yeah, yeah, all right. We're, we're, we can bring the entire Illuminati thing back to this time period. It might, it's quite convincing. They were founded in 1776. Um, <laughs> Mayday, uh, Ingolstadt, Bavaria. The... Uh, I, I actually I think the, the the thing to go for is uh, is to uh, find to have the uh, both sides anti occult uh, hit squads discover the, each other over the over the corpse of the same uh, occult conspiracy that they were simultaneously trying to suppress and then seeing whether things whether they managed to negotiate or just open fire you know. Mm. I, I would also, for, for general atmosphere in this period, uh, recommend Richard Holmes's *The Age of Wonder*. It's not not a great book in many respects. It it, it could really have used an editor, but um, it, it's basically uh, the lives of the Herschels and Humphrey Davy and somebody else whom I've now forgotten, yeah. with a lot of context and you know. The uh, the Royal Society was getting sclerotic, uh, yeah, and so you had the British Association for the Advancement of Science, as it would be, founded outside London without aristocratic patronage, to get on with I, doing some actual science rather than congratulating I, each other, that kind of thing. I would uh, recommend also recommend Jenny Oglow's, I think that's her name, uh, book on the Lunar Society of mm. the Midlands. Um, a group and fr- of friend of the show, Phil Masters, has a manuscript in in um, in the process of publication that that will deal with this. Oh wow! I look forward to that. <laughs> um, the the but uh, a, a number of significant industrialists and others. Uh yes, uh, Wedgwood, uh, Erasmus Darwin, uh, uh, Charles's grandfather, I think. I think so, or great uncle, yeah, or, or, like or great uncle, something like that, who was. Uh, who was also a, a doctor and a naturalist, and may have anticipated, arguably anticipated, evolution, uh, which is uh, which is more distinguished relative uh, brought to uh, culmination. Uh, I think, on the whole, that this is um, it, it's an exploit. It has been exploited, 
there are a fair number of um, of of role playing games. Lots of them military themed, and we've talked before about the limitations of the military form. But for one off adventures and for short campaigns, I think you can make it interesting. Mm. Um, probably with a if you're playing a military unit, then so, probably some sort of um, troop playing role playing setup is is going to work with one officer and a, and the lower ranks being held held in common um and, and circulating officers Perhaps. yeah i i haven't seen much that tries to do this seriously for the royal navy um I, there, there have been quite a few pirate type games but i haven't seen much dealing with the the, the more formal side in part because the captain is unambiguously god and that is hard, hard to do effectively in role playing. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you, if none of you are the captain, then uh, what you've got is a patron who go, moves around with you and te- tells you to do this, do that, go ashore, sort this out, Mister Hornblower. Mm, I, I think it might might be more along the lines of you you are a group, you're a group of officers who get sent off to do a thing, officers officers and, and common seamen. Uh, rather than you are making the big decisions. Yeah, I think that's what, what I was saying. I think it's probably a little easier uh, because detachments and uh, and units sent off for special tasks are easier to do on land. I think it's probably a little easier if you're doing sharp the role playing game rather than um, uh, rather than hornblower the mm. role playing game. But, uh, but there's a lot of fiction in both settings. Yeah. And uh, and and to, and to be honest, uh, the both Sharp and um, and uh, what's his name, Maturin, and uh, Aubrey Maturin, and then there's uh, Ramage and a whole bunch of others. An awful well, lot of writers saw that Forrester had stopped writing and decided, I want more of this stuff. I'm going to write it myself. Yeah, and 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 some of them did a, a good job of it. What I was saying was, they aren't. They're they're definitely not excluding. The uh, harshness of the of the time period—they're harsher than uh, the than Forrester was with, with Hornblower, and there are uh, there are har- a few, quite a few harsh edges in in some of the Hornblower stories. But uh, yeah, sharp. that that's another thing that uh, be- because this starts to look like a recognisable modern period, uh, one one can run run up against. Well, no, just that that sort of human dignity just isn't a thing people think about yet. And obviously you can put it in. You can just say, well, we, we the player characters, are people who feel this way and we don't have to run up against the nasty bits or not. But I think, again, that's a thing for pre-game discussion. Yeah, there is always what I think is nowadays called the Bridgerton option. And in inventing a past which is more friendly to difference than the actual past was... Um, uh, good society and its illustrations, which are uh, diverse, um, uh, gives you the uh, gives you that opportunity, and I, I can see why it sells better. And if you're going to go um, all fantastical, I would say that is probably a way uh, to do uh, to to go if you're going into an entirely alternate history. Mm. But some per- some persons sense of reality may balk at that yeah again i'm I'm not saying that one way is better or worse than another just make sure you're on the same page because if you run into it in play 
it can be awfully yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah, that's definitely one for pre pre game negotiation. Um, you sort you sort of have to. Have we witted on enough? I think so. Okay, well, we as I say, we were going to talk about uh, the generic problems of the abolition of slavery, um, but I think we'll save that for the next time. If you would like to tell us which side you would be on in the Regency period, uh, then you can contact us. Leave a message on the website or email podcast at techelli.ly. And we'll be back again in another month with uh, more of the aforementioned waffling and wittering and uh, pontificating, which we hope you're enjoying. Take care.